You're listening to the Midtown Church Sermon Podcast. Midtown Church is a family loved and served by God, compelled to love and serve each other and Austin with God. Learn more at midtownaustin.org. Well, good morning, Midtown family. It's fun to see you. And uh, like Sean echoed, fun to see your faces, the actual faces. It is great to, to see you. Um, I, am, I recognize there's some new people here, so I want to introduce myself. My name is Justin. I serve as the associate pastor here at Midtown, and we're going to continue our sermon series through the book of Proverbs today. And so really glad that you're here. Those of you who are new, stick around. I'd love to meet you afterwards. That'd be really fun. We're going to start by telling you today just a little fable. So let me tell you this fable. Once upon a time, there was a man. He moved to a remote village in Siberia. And he was just trying to get to know the people for the first time, and he's sitting down to have a meal with his people. And he notices behind the person he's speaking with that all of a sudden a house just goes up in flames, just bursts out in flames. Two people run out of the house, caught on fire, and they roll around in the snow to try to soothe their burns. And he yells out, fire, fire. The person sitting across from him says, no, 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 we don't talk about fires here. That's impolite. We don't talk about fire. A few minutes later, he sees another house just go up in flames, and this time no one runs out, but he can hear the person screaming and wailing and dying inside. He decides he's going to go for a walk and check out this village, and he notices as he walks through, there's lots of houses that have been burned down, and some of the people that he sees, they've got enormous scars on their skin, and he notices particularly the the high schoolers and the college-aged people have scars all over them. Yet no one would talk about the fire. All this pain, and no one would talk about it. Rather than talk about it, though, what people did is that instead of talking about the fire, what they do is they'd actually go to the internet, and they search privately to learn about fire and try to figure out what fire is at. Occasionally, the village preacher would preach about the fire, but he really just preached about how bad it was. He didn't talk so much about where fire comes from or how it can be contained or how it could actually serve the good of the people in that village. He just wanted everyone to be afraid. Well, the man continued to live there amidst all the horror that he saw in this place and the people who would not talk about the one thing that was destroying them. It was the fire. You know, fire can be an incredible blessing, right? It can be a great blessing when it's in the proper place. And this village could have benefited if they just knew how to contain the fire and, and use a fire in a fireplace to stay warm, use a fire in an oven so that they could cook and have food from it. But they didn't know how to do that because no one talked about it. And it literally, what they did instead was they just tried to experiment and figure it out themselves. And they experimented with fire and they played with fire and they got burned. If you were astute enough to look at your connection card, you know the topic that we're talking about today. And I would argue that sex and sexuality are the house fires of our day. They're burning people, they're hurting people, and leaving many scarred and wounded. And while this fable may be less fitting today, because it certainly is something that we in our sex-saturated society, we talk about all the time, it's not that we don't talk about it, but I think the only thing worse than not talking about it is letting yourself be caught up and be persuaded by the tide of our culture and buying into the narrative that the world is telling us, rather than hearing from the good God who created it and the good God who has purposes for it. The question in our church today should not be, are we talking about sex? It should be, are people being more discipled by the world than they're being discipled by God's word and the good God who created it? So this morning, I'd like to argue that men and women in our society have become unknown, unknown victims to a world Saturated with sexual images, pervasive in a pervasive worldview that believes that sex is merely a physical act. A physical act that is disconnected from our mental, emotional, and spiritual lives. And the ramifications of this worldview are tragic and long-lasting if embraced. It's like a fire. It's like a house fire for us. 
And her uh, groundbreaking book, Love Thy Body, Nancy Pierce, gets to the heart of the common worldview that's being presented to, to us today. She's a best-selling author, award-winning author, professor of apologetics at the University, uh, our Houston Baptist University. Brilliant thinker, as I read this book over the last month. And she masterfully and courageously gets to the heart of what the common sexual worldview is in our culture. And the worldview that's pressed down, unfortunately, from the time the kids are in elementary school all the way through college, it's the pervasive worldview that says that sex is merely a physical act. It has nothing to do with our bodies. Our bodies are separate and detached from our souls. And this worldview underlying this deception behind this, that's the deception behind the hookup culture, the pornography industry. It's the worldview that it's just our bodies. And she calls this dualism, where you look at your body and your soul and your emotions and your relationships all separately. She describes it really well in this portion of the book, so I just want to read a section of it to you. Researcher Donna Freitas, after interviewing hundreds of students, concluded that the hookup culture creates a drastic divide between physical intimacy and emotional intimacy. It teaches young people uh, not to reckon with someone's personhood. The same dualism is responsible for the, the drastic divide and Freitas observed between physical and emotional intimacy. Dualistic mentality encourages young people to disassociate their bodies sexually from who they are as whole persons. It devalues the body and, and drains relationships of the moral and emotional depth. In an interview with Rolling Stone magazine, a student named Naomi said uh, uh, hooking up has made, quote, people assume that there are two distinct elements in a relationship, an emotional one and a sexual one, and they pretend like there are no lines between them. Do you recognize this dualism? Young people assume that sexual relationships can solely be physical, disconnected from their emotions. Sexual intercourse, the most intimate of body, bodily relations, is disconnected from personal relations. Sex is cast purely as an activity that can be enjoyed apart from any hint of love or commitment. All that matters is consent. Young people recite the script by heart even though they don't like it much. The college student named Alicia says, hookups are very scripted. You learn to turn everything off except your body and make yourself emotionally invulnerable. Another student, Fallon, laments, sex should stem from emotional intimacy, but it's the opposite with us right now. A senior named Stephanie claims, it's body first, personality second. Sexuality is treated not as an embodied expression of our selfhood, but merely an instrument for physical release and recreation. Young people desperately need the biblical ethic framed in, in, position in, uh, in positive terms and showing that it overcomes the two-story divide. It reintegrates the body and the person. When young people learn how to reckon with someone's personhood, the result is sexual relationships that are far healthier and more fulfilling. Young people today need a biblical ethics, she writes. Well, today that's what we're going to talk about. We're going to look at a father who speaks to his son about sexuality in the book of Proverbs. And he's going to do it just like, like a father that loves his child would do. Before we look at what he says, though, I do want to make two kind of concession statements that I think would be important. Uh, first, if you're here this morning and you're not, not a Christian or maybe you're just checking out uh, the church or just considering Jesus again, I want you to know that this is, this is kind of giving you a chance to hear kind of an insider view of what the Christians believe. This is nothing that we would say that you should adopt, but we want you to hear what Christians should believe about this sexuality. So it's not an attack on you. It's a, a cultural attempt to, to see what the world says versus what Christians really believe about sexuality. Second thing I would say before we read it is let me remind you that this passage that we're reading was in a very patriarchal society, and so it is actual father speaking with his sons, but I want you to know that as much as it's saying that, this could easily be a mother speaking to her daughters. When he talks about the man getting seduced by an adulteress, it could be easily be a woman that is seduced by an adulterous man. 
So take all that into account and just let it read for itself in its context. This is the cultural context of a patriarchal society. But as a father who loves his son and wants to be honest and talk to him about the fires. If you want to take notes, the three points we're going to look at today are what is promised, uh, what it costs, and what to do. For let's look first at what is promised. So this first passage we're going to look at, we're going to see the father tell his son what he's seen in his lifetime. Like he's witnessed something. He's going to paint a picture and tell a story about what temptation is like. And by telling the story about what temptation is like, he's going to help the son realize this is what you should expect. When sexual temptation comes your way, here are the things that are going to be promised to you, but they're not going to deliver. So let's look at Proverbs chapter 7. Verse 1, my son, keep my words and store up my commands within you. Keep my commands and you will live. Guard my teaching as the apple of your eye. Bind them on your fingers. Write them on the tablet of your heart. Say to wisdom, you are my sister. To insight, you are my relative. They will keep you from the adulterous woman and the wayward woman with her seductive words. So here the father is talking about the fire. He's having an honest conversation. And now he's going to tell him a story that's an illustration for him. In verse 6, at the window of my house, I looked down through the lattice. I saw among the simple, uh, uh, I noticed among uh, uh, the young men, a youth who had no sense. He was going down the street near her corner, walking along the direction of her house at twilight as the day was fading, as the dark of night set in. Then out came the woman to meet him, dressed like a prostitute with crafty intent. She's unruly and defiant. Her feet never stay home. Now in the street, now in the squares, at every corner she lurks. So he's describing a man here that has no sense. And instead of actually going home to do what he should do, he knows where he is and he's just loitering. He's loitering. He's walking around and waiting for temptation to seize him. Instead of leaving, he's right there in its midst, knowing likely what's going to happen. When then she comes to him and she gives him four false promises, four false ideas. The first one that she says, it could be equated to what we would say, it's not a big deal. She took hold of him. And kissed him. And with a brazen face, she said, Today I've fulfilled my vows. I have food for my fellowship offering uh, at home. So I came out to meet you. I looked for you and found you. The first rationalization that we face is it's not a big deal. It's just an invitation for dinner. It's actually from an invitation for dinner. So I actually just went to the temple and worshiped. And she's coming back likely with, with meat left over from her worship. She's just inviting a guy to dinner, right? Well, we know that these little things that we think aren't a big deal. They add up to be a big deal. It's my observation that very, very few people ever compromise sexually just at a flip of a hat. It's many little things that compile to something big. For her, it was, hey, come on, it's just a meal. For us, it might be, oh, it's just a date with someone outside the Christian faith. It's just one date. Oh, it's just an innocent Google search. It's just a business trip that I have with with my coworker. Oh, we're just gonna take a, a nap together. It's not a big deal. In my experience and the experience of this father, that's one of the first temptations is that idea. It's not a big deal. The next thing she says is that it's going to be great. In verse 16, I've covered my bed with colored linens from Egypt. I've perfumed my bed with myrrh and oils and cinnamon. Second rationalization is it's going to be great. She is appealing strongly right now to his senses, and he's saying, this is going to be awesome. This is going to be so fulfilling. You're going to do this. You're going to feel loved. You're going to feel powerful. You're going to feel wanted. Like, this has such great promise. It's going to be great. And this is the promise that's offered to us time and time again in sexual temptation, in pornography, that it's going to be great, that it's going to be better than the last time. It's a rationalization. The father is wanting his son to come to expect. 
Third thing she promises, it will last. Come, let's drink deeply of my love and love till the morning. Let's enjoy ourselves with love. It's the idea that this will last. Like you can drink deeply. This is going to continue. I promise it's going to last. It's going to provide long-term satisfaction for you. But that's a lie that we often believe when we're tempted sexually. We believe it will last forever, and that's why there's always such heartbreak when the relationship ends and couples break up. The last one, most deadly perhaps, is that no one will find out. My husband's not at home. He's gone away on a long journey. He took his purse filled with money and will not be home until full moon. Fourth rationalization. No one will know. It's totally safe. My husband's away on a business trip. He's not coming back. We're not going to get caught. The only problem is it actually never works that way because you know. No one knows. No, yeah, you and the other person, you know. You may think that you can get around your internet safeguard. You might think that uh, I don't really have to tell the girls in my huddle about this thing. You might think, I don't really have to tell my wife. I'll cover my tracks. No one will know. Well, the fact is that you will know. And most likely, someone else is going to know soon, too. That's what the Father's warning him to expect. These kind of temptations, the temptations that come with sexual temptation, are it's not, it's not a big deal. It's going to be great. It's going to last. And no one will know. All lies, and the Father knows because he's seen what has happened and what it's cost people when they fall prey to these lies. So we move now to point number two, what it costs. And for this, we're going to go back a few. It's kind of a, a series of uh, Proverbs 5, 6, and 7. Now we're going to go back to 5, and he's teaching his son along the same lines. Chapter 5, the father focuses more on what it's going to cost his son if he were to compromise sexually. Verse 1, my son, pay attention to my wisdom. Turn your ear to my words of insight, that you may maintain discretion from your lips and may preserve knowledge. For the lips of the adulterous woman drip honey. Her speech is smoother than oil, but in the end, she's bitter gall, sharp as a double-edged sword. Her feet go down to death. Her steps lead straight to the grave. She gives no thought to the way of life. Her paths wander aimlessly, but she does not know it. Now then, <clears throat> excuse me. Now then, my sons, do not turn aside from what I say. Keep far from her. Do not go near the door of her house, lest you lose your honor to others and your dignity to the one who is cruel. Lest strangers feast on your wealth and your toil and uh, toil enrich a house of another. At the end of your life, you will groan when your flesh and body are spent. You will say, how I hated discipline, how my heart spurned correction, how I did not obey my teachers or turn my ear to my instructors, and I was soon in serious trouble in the assembly of God's people. There's many things that could be pointed out here, but just for the sake of time today, I just want to point out two of the consequences when we ask the question, what will it cost when you compromise sexually? It's going to cost suffering, and it's going to cost regret. You see, sexual sin causes pain. It hurts physically, emotionally, mentally, spiritually. Contrary to what our culture teaches us, that it's just a physical act, it's not true. It's never been true. Our bodies are connected to our emotions, our physicality, our spirituality. It's not true what the world is telling us. It's why when Jesus was asked about marriage and divorce, one of the things he says, he points way back to Genesis, and he says the two will become one flesh. When two people become one flesh, it's why Paul, when he was writing to the Corinthian church and speaking to them about the sexual ethic of their day, he would write these words in 1 Corinthians 6, flee sexual immorality. All other sins a person commits are outside the body, but whoever sins sexually sins against their own body. Do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you receive from God? You are not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your body. 
We're going to come back to this verse a little bit later, but for right now, I just want to point out that the, you see it right there. Like, your bodies are, are irreversibly linked to your soul. Like, these things go together. The lie that the world's portraying is not true. Sex is an intimate act. It's not just a physical one. That's why there's so much suffering when we take it out of context and don't do what God says with our sexuality. You know what's crazy is as we get more and more scientifically advanced, there's actually proof of this biologically. There's proof of this in your biochemistry. Again, to read from, from Piercy here, this is what she noted about the biology of sexuality. Imagine the surprise when scientists discover that oxytocin, oxytocin is released during sexual intercourse, especially, but not exclusively, in women. Consequently, the desire to attach to the other person when we have sex is not only an emotion, but also in our chemistry. Oxytocin has been shown to create a sense of trust. As one sex therapist puts it, we have intercourse, we create an involuntary chemical commitment to one another. The upshot is that even if you think you're having no strings attached hookup, you're in reality creating a chemical bond, whether you mean to or not. An advice columnist for Glamour Magazine warns that, that about, about your hormones when we get, prematurely, we get prematurely attached. When you intend to have just casual sex, biology might turn up, might trump your intentions. That might be why Paul said, whoever sins sexually sins against their own body. Sex involves bodies down to the level of our biochemistry. The same holds true for men. The main neurochemical responsible for male response in intimate sexual contact is a vasopressin. It's structurally similar to oxytocin and has similar emotional effects. Scientists believe it stimulates bonding with a woman and with offspring. Vasopressin has been dubbed the monogamy molecule. As Grossman observes, you might say that we're designed to bond. Paul's words ring even more true today than they did at his time. Do you not know that he who unites himself with a prostitute is one with her body? For thus it is said that two will become one flesh. Lauren Winter at Duke University translates Paul's words this way. Don't you know when you sleep with someone, your body makes a promise whether you do or not? The implication here is that repeatedly hooking up involves repeatedly breaking your bodily promise. No wonder breakups are so painful. No wonder many adults cultivate a cynical attitude just to overcome the pain. It's no coincidence that the top two prescribed drugs at our university's healthcare centers are antidepressants and birth control. Even pornography has the addictive power. It does this because it literally changes the chemistry of our brains. Like other addictive triggers, pornography floods our brain with dopamine. The rush of brain chemicals, when it happens repeatedly, rewires the brain. It's a reward pathway so that we become a default setting. Brain scientists refer to this as uh, uh, neuroplasty. Neutrons fire together. That means they wire together. The latest science is confirming that human beings are indeed whole human beings. Body and personhood divide is not true of who we are. Science points to it. Scripture points to it. That sexual sin, therefore, leads to immense suffering, physically, emotionally, mentally, spiritually. And that's why a loving father is trying to talk to his son about this. And that's why, as a pastor, we're talking to you about this. This is why we put this on the agenda of things to talk about through this Proverbs series, because we want to love you just as this father is trying to love his son. I know I've canceled so many people over the last years, so many people that have been hurt because of sexual things that they've done, and it's caused pain in their lives. It's the, it's the house fires of our day that are harming people. In this passage, the father is trying to spare his son of that suffering. So what does it cost? First thing it says is it costs us suffering. Sex in its proper context 
is like a fire outside of its context, it will burn you. It will cost you physically, emotionally, spiritually, mentally. Second thing it will cost you is it will cost you regrets. Go back to Proverbs 7 here. He says, at the end of your life, you will groan. When your flesh and body are spent, you will say, how I hated discipline, how my heart spurned correction. I would not obey my teachers or turn my ear to my instructions. It's a very humbling, humbling verses to read because the father's saying, don't do this because at the end of your life, you're going to look back and you're going to think, oh, man, it sure was satisfying when it happened, but later on, you're going to look back at it with such regret. You're going to say, I wish I would have listened. I wish I would have followed my teacher's instruction. Now, I'm not naive enough to know that the majority of here this morning don't have regrets. I know I have regrets. It might have been things that you did in high school. It could have been things you did as a young adult. It could have been something that you, you did in a previous marriage. It could be something from last night. But there's something about sexual sin that sticks with us. It's not that God doesn't forgive us. It's just one of those things where it's hard for us to forgive ourselves. Let me pause here to say, trust me, God is bigger than all of our regrets. All grace abounds to us. His mercy is new every morning. I'm going to end that way by pointing us back to that truth. But I also want us to hear the words of the Father. Like, you can actually be completely forgiven yet still hold regrets. And he's trying to spare his son regrets. What I love, though, is what he does next. Because he doesn't just do like the, the fable preacher that just tries to get people to be afraid. What he's going to do now, though, is tell him the good place, the right context, how to put the fire in the fireplace, how to put the fire in the oven and make it something of great reward. Going on in chapter 5, now we're in this third point, and what do we do? Chapter 5, drink water from your own cistern, running water from your own well. Should your springs overflow in the streets, your streams of water in the public squares? No, let them be yours alone, never to be shared with strangers. May your fountain be blessed. May you rejoice in the wife of your youth, a loving dove, a graceful deer. May her breast satisfy you always. May you ever be intoxicated with your love. Some of you are like, wait a second, that's in the Bible? <laughs> yes, it's in the Bible. The father is telling his son where he can express his sexuality, where it's meant to be fulfilled in its furthest and in its fullest, where it's meant to be in a way where it's not just a physical act, but your whole body, your whole soul, your whole spirit is engaged because your whole person is given to another person. So yes, don't spread yourself out to many people. Instead, pick one person, marry them, enjoy your sexuality with that person and that joy, the two becoming one flesh. I joke that people often say, do you, do you really take the Bible literally? And I say, yes, on these verses, I, I do. I very much take these literally. But that it's here because God is pro-sex. Like, you, you get this, right? Like, God invented sex. Like, God is for it, but he's for it in its right context. And when it's in its right context, oh, it can be just a great blessing because it mends a body and a soul of two people in the most intimate of ways. In Christian marriage, it's not just physical act done with a dualistic body. It's not. It's a profound union of body and soul. It's the deepest form of relational intimacy, body, mind, and spirit together. One more quote from Piercy. I think we have this one on the screen, though. She writes that Christianity is often confused with being negative because of its teaching on sin and guilt. But in reality, it has a much more positive view of sexuality than the secularist dualistic view. The, true, uh, uh, the truth is that you are made for something more. Your sexuality was never meant to be separate from your deepest spiritual and relational longings, but in expression of them. Do you see how this goes against the grain of what our world tells us? This is not just a physical act. We're not dualistic. 
And because we believe that it's not just a dualistic physical act that doesn't mean anything with our whole person, we're given a, very, uh, a much ro- more robust view of our sexuality. In the context of marriage, we don't just have physical acts with one another. We are blended two, made one. That's why the Bible instructs us about sex, because God, like this father in this proverb, he loves us, and he's wanting to give us the proper context to where we can be, where sex can be a blessing. Now, I want to pause real quick and just take a quick parenthetical note to say, uh, to try to be clear on something. Uh, I've heard sometimes pastors, and I know in some cultures, in the way things are expressed, uh, sometimes in the Christian culture, sex gets like overpromised. And I know I've had couples who, after they got married, maybe they actually waited to have sex until they were married, and they ended up being very uh, disappointed or frustrated because sex was more difficult or maybe less enjoyable than they imagined. And what I, what I wanted to say to that is that, that any married couple who's following Jesus, sincerely following Jesus, can make the sexual relationship good because it's not about how-tos or techniques. It's about loving and treating another person above yourself and caring to their needs above yourself. So I don't want to overpromise, but I want to say if you, in your marriage, work on it together, honor Christ and serve one another above yourselves, you will have a great sex life. You just have to work at it, which is kind of fun to work at probably too, right? End parenthetical note. So what to do? Wait until marriage. That's what to do. You want to be wise with your sexuality? Enjoy sex in the context which God created it. That begs the question, well, what if I'm not married? <laughs> to those that are not married, and even really those that are married in a different context, we have the same command, and the command of what to do is to flee temptation. Going back to 1 Corinthians chapter 6, flee sexual immorality. That's the command, flee. Stay as far away from it as you can. If you noticed in the first passage that we read, it described the guy that the, the dad was looking down to describe in the scene, and the scene was just this guy just kind of loitering around the streets. He knows what he's doing. He knows who's going to be coming around the corner, yet he just loiters, probably thinking, I'm thinking about it, I might want to do it, I might not want to do it. You notice also when in Proverbs 7, the, next, the second passage we read, that he actually tells them, don't go near. Keep your path far from her. Don't go near her. Don't go near the door of her house. Flee. The command is to flee. And this is a command for those who are married, who are also prone to all the same sexual sins of adultery and pornography and everything else as well. And of course, those who aren't yet married and don't have the opportunity for sex in the context that God created it. So what does fleeing look like? That's the question I want you to wrestle with this week. What does fleeing look like? I can't tell you what that is. That's where you need to seek wisdom and figure out what it means for you. But let me give you just a couple ideas, some things to get your your mind thinking about this week. Fleeing might mean setting up safeguards on your computer or on your phone to prevent you from looking at things you don't want to look at. It might mean that you just choose. You're not going to go on a date with someone who doesn't share your Christian worldview on sexuality. It means going home early to your apartment rather than staying late into the night or sleeping over. It might mean choosing not to watch certain movies or certain shows. It, it might mean knowing when you're tempted. If you had a hard day or it's late at night and you call a buddy and, and ask for their help or ask for prayer. It means confessing your struggles and your sins to a trusted friend and letting that be an ongoing part of your conversation. It means not going out to eat alone or to a hotel room with a coworker on a business trip. It means not talking to a friend or a coworker of the opposite sex about the struggles that you're having within your marriage. What does fleeing look like? That's the question you need to ask yourself this week. It's the question we've been trying to ask throughout the whole series, right? What is the wise thing for me to do? Let me make it a little bit different. What is the wise thing for me to do sexually? Ask yourself that question. And then real specifically, the question I hope you would ask this week 
is what are the wise boundaries for me to set when it comes to my sexuality. I know two things about boundaries. If you don't have one, if you don't have boundaries, sin's always going to take you further than you want to go. It's going to make you stay longer than you want to stay, and it's going to make you pay more than you want to pay. I know that. If you don't have boundaries, it's going to take you further than you want to go, and you're going to stay longer than you thought you'd stay, and you're going to pay more than you wanted to pay. But I know something else about boundaries. I know if you set high standards, extreme measures, you will not regret them. Whatever highest standards that you could set for yourself, you're not going to regret setting those high standards. And so will you take some time this week to ask that question? What is the wise thing for me to do with my sexuality? Would you not just do it on a personal basis, but would you actually get together with someone else in our church and talk with them and talk about it together? Because we need each other to do this. When it comes to our sexuality, we've been bombarded, bombarded with messages from the world, probably more than any time in human history. We're indoctrinated from elementary school all the way through college. Most of us probably had parents that were less than helpful in instructing us. Most of us maybe have been in churches that were less than helpful in instructing us. And yet, it's easier and easier to find sex on a screen anytime you want. We need each other's help to live out this Christian worldview and to strive toward it together. And so, consider that question this week. Talk with a trusted friend. Discuss it together and help each other create the boundaries that are going to help you live wise sexually. I want to say a few things in closing, a little bit unrelated. Three things. One, we are 100% forgiven in Christ. If you've put your faith in Jesus, you are completely forgiven. You're loved. You're pure. You're made righteous in God's eyes. He has forgiven you. Paul says, we're great. Where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. God is aware. God is also equally aware of the brokenness of the families from which we come from. God is aware of this intense spiritual battle and the messaging we hit from the world. He knows how difficult this is on us. And he's forgiven us and he's compassionate on us when we fail. Second thing to say is that our sexuality can be redeemed. There is nothing, 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 nothing in your past that cannot be redeemed. Nothing that you've done makes you unqualified for the joys of experiencing sex in a Christian marriage. God makes all things new and he can do the same in you. And third thing, uh, a word just to those who are single. Fleeing sexual immorality is very difficult. And I know if you are single and you deeply desire to be married so that you can experience this within marriage, let me just encourage you to keep waiting and don't compromise. And I want to encourage you to remember that the Lord and Savior that we're worshiping this morning, that we're going to sing to here momentarily, was a single man. And Scripture says that he was tempted in every way that we are yet without sin. And so I'd encourage you to draw near to your single Lord that's been tempted in every way, just as you have. Let me close this in prayer, and let's take communion together. Father, we need your grace. The, the world's messaging, the indoctrination we get is so prevalent. Would you help us to see with a, a Christian worldview and, and, and have a, a, the standards that will protect us from harm and the standards that would give us the most joy. We pray, God, that we would really know your forgiveness today, experience it in our hearts, even as we worship and sing these songs. Rejoice that you call us to come near to you, that anyone can come to your altar and worship you. And I pray that we would wrestle with this question and that we would talk about it with our friends 
And in doing so, God, you would lead us to, to boundaries that would benefit our lives tremendously, that we'd heed the advice of this Father and really you as our Heavenly Father. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to the Midtown Church Sermon Podcast. We hope this ministry has blessed you. If you would like to support this ministry, you can donate at midtownaustin.org.